everyone. Matt here from the Benji Podcast, Success Stories Unveiled. I'm here with Luke McDonald. A different kind of success story, but I am going to dig into lots of things about your life and some things that I don't know the answers to yet, so okay. I hope I pro- you're prepared for that. I don't know if I'll know the answers, but anyway. Well, I have a couple of icebreaker questions for okay. you first. I didn't do this in the last podcast, but yeah. uh, first one is, is your favorite movie of all time? Gallipoli. Never heard of it. It's an early uh, Mel Gibson movie. Okay. And it's about the uh, uh, world. It's Australians and Canadians were on uh, the beaches of Gallipoli, and they were used as fodder for a British invasion. It's a horrible, horrible war story, but it's really spectacular, the inner workings of it. It's, okay. It's really good, yeah. And what about your favorite country music song? Uh, I'm going to go with No Fences. <laughs> Okay. Sorry about that. I don't know okay. if that's offensive to you or not. No, but no, that's, no. But, uh, it's not. I could never be offended by an answer and, to that. And then I'd also say, uh, I'd say Poncho and Lefty would be one of my favorites, Merle and, and yeah. Willie. That's a good one. Yeah. And when you were a child, how old are you now, Luke? Uh, 57. Did you have like a childhood crush? Oh, Farrah Fawcett for sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah. I just totally dated myself. But yeah, she was the one. Never had her poster though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mom, my mom wouldn't let me have that. I don't think. And if you could have dinner with anybody dead or alive, dead or alive, I'd say Albert Schweitzer would be my my favorite guy. He's a, a doctor who is also a lawyer who is also a, a philanthropist in the sense of uh, he donated a lot of his time. So he literally moved to the jungles of Africa. And uh, I found his story the most intriguing of all. So I like, I like, uh-huh. I'd like to sit down with him. Cool. And last one, pineapple on pizza or no? Definitely. Oh, okay. This is going to be a good interview. <laughs> we're, we're getting along. And, and where'd you grow up, Luke? I grew up in Dartmouth. I yeah. uh, was brought home to Pleasant Street in Dartmouth. And then we moved to uh, Birchdale Avenue. And now currently reside in Coal Harbor. Cool. And I'm going to ask you some like fitness and health related things first before we get into the entrepreneur stuff. But... Early life, like what was life like for you as a kid? Were you healthy? Uh, very much so. We played like crazy. We're, we're the typical family. I'm from six, the first generation of our family, so to speak. We had five that were all within uh, seven years of each other. So my mom had five kids uh, under seven. And then uh, Laura came later, and she was uh, 10 years after uh, Sarah. So... Uh, so we, we were very active. Our street had, uh, you know, probably 20 kids that were in our age group. So we had a hockey team. We had a baseball team. Uh, we played Olympics. We played long-distance hide-and-seek. So, you know, I rem- remember uh, hiding in Kmart <laughs> and boogieing a mile home to get to base first. Wow. You know? So it was a very playful, uh, active life, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that continued through high school and after that? Yeah, through high school. So I, uh, you know, in grade three, I ran my first little race around Mary Lawson School. And uh, my, my teacher, gym teacher at the time was uh, Ralph McLean. And he said, pace yourself. And I said, I had nothing to do with pacing. So I just sprinted the whole way. And he was shocked. I got around uh, the whole way twice that quickly. Yeah. And so then I made a cross-country team of some sort. And uh, that started my... Uh, love-hate relationship with running. <laughs> yeah, and, and how long did the competitive running last for? Uh, I'm still really competitive. Yeah. I'm, I'm racing young Lukes because yeah. of little kids that are 10 years old, and I actually want to beat them. They yeah. think it's a joke. I, I'm trying to crush the little guys. but uh, uh, So I'm still really competitive, but I'm much more controlled and 
uh, I want to run very deep into my life. Uh, so I've slowed everything down, uh, and I've set up uh, my running. And the, like nine years ago, I set a goal that uh, I want to run under 20 minutes for 5K for the next 10 years. Yeah. And I've gotten eight of those uh, 10 years in. Nice. Uh, and so I'm going to reset my goal. Uh, my next 10-year goal starts this year, and I want to run under 22:30 when I'm 67. Oh, interesting. So I'm going to slow down slowly. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, that's a good idea. But I was I was competitive up until 1996, and then uh, that's when I sort of hung it up after yeah. uh, uh, being injured uh, a little bit too long, but and not really dealing with my injury properly. Right. And did you run in university? Uh, I ran a little bit in university, uh, and then I took a year off uh, to go to Australia to run competitively in Canberra. My dad had uh, got transferred there as a teacher. He went on a teacher's exchange. And my running hero was a guy named uh, Robert DiCostella, and he was uh, the director of the Australian Sport Institute, which was in Canberra. And I said, I think I can wiggle my way into the Australian Sport Institute somehow, or at minimum meet my hero, and because uh, I knew how the running culture and how running worked in Australia. And I said, if I get down there, I'll be able to meet all these guys, and I'll be able to run with them. And that, that happened. Oh, cool. uh, so it was really cool. The drag with Australia was I got uh, uh, mono when I was down there, and I lost way too much weight. I couldn't get acclimatized, which I thought was the problem. And uh, I remember the doctor saying, like, he said, hey, mate, you got, uh, you got glandular fever. And I asked him, how long do I have? And he said, well, in Canada, that's mono. You just won't <laughs> run. So I ran one race. I, I ran 34-something. I won a 2-4 of 2-E's 2.2. And uh, that was the last running I did in, in Australia. I just got a job at a bike shop in, uh, in an 85. Uh, that was all of 1985. In 86, I came back to university. Cool. Uh, and then I officially flunked out in 87. I, cu- I couldn't do accounting, still can't. Yeah. I told the dean I'm just going to hire an accountant. Why do I need an accountant <laughs> for? <laughs> yeah. So I would like to blend some of the kind of career stuff in with the, the fitness stuff. Sure. Um, tell me, like, so after university, what, what's been the career path since then? Well, I basically knew that I wanted to own aerobics first. And so I went back to my original job. When, you know, basically the day I turned 16, I started to work for a gentleman named Dean Hartman, uh, who owned uh, uh, A1 Athletic Wear. So I went, to, I went to work as a part-timer there, and I was literally the youngest uh, shoe buyer in Canada probably because, you know, I used to go over to the store that I currently own and write down the four or five best-selling shoes, and I'd bring them to Dean and say, hey, we have to have this stuff, so we <laughs> buy it. And so we were always uh, fighting with the big guys in terms of, you know, we want to take on aerobics first as a, as a little running shop. And so that's how, you know, I got it in, uh, got into uh, you know, being a, uh, a running retailer, so to speak. And so then the career path sort of went from there. Uh, sports experts got bigger. They went to five stores. Uh, uh, and then they got involved with uh, uh, Sports Experts National. And then it became, it eventually became Sport Check. When it became Sport Check, I lost the ability to buy for the store. And so we could only get whatever product they sent in. And then I lost my mojo because of that. I said, because it's the purchasing and the motivating the staff. I did it by selecting products that they would like and they would like to sell. Uh, And when that was gone, 
you know, I left, and uh, I was lucky enough to be good friends with a, another, really the first employee of Aerobics First, Freeman Churchill. Uh, he he became sort of the top foot guy in the city in terms of uh, athletes and stuff like that. He's uh, he was a podorthist at Orthotics East, and he basically always said, "Luke, if you ever need a job." So one Wednesday, I, I said, hey, Freeman, I need a job. <laughs> and he said, when do you need to start? I said, Monday. <laughs> and he said, sure. And so uh, I worked with Freeman for three years. Then uh, another job came up with uh, Halifax Regional Municipality, and I got to work there for five years, which was really good and really bad because I went in at 158 pounds, and I came out at 213 Wow. Right. So I went in as an injured runner, and then I sat in what I call an offical, which is a cubicle office, and I yeah. called it an offical because it was awful. Uh, and so I didn't run. I was very sedentary. I thought there was going to be a four-letter word in there. No, no <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, no, no editing required. Here. But anyway, um, so I went. I worked there with the city, and what happened there was I got paid more than I'd ever been paid. Had a bit of a pension that was saving up. And that's the that's how I eventually had the opportunity to buy into Aerobics First. Right. So they were they were sort of looking for an outside person in the community builder, so to speak, uh, to reestablish uh, where they had been in the past and needed to get to in the future because uh, they had lost a couple key players that uh, just moved on, and um, they knew uh, Margaret Armour, who is uh, who sort of sought me out. She's the one that sort of said, "Hey, you should come and do this." not necessarily knowing it was my life's goal to get there. I'd been drawing pictures of how I was going to buy aerobics first since I was 18, Yeah, literally. And how old were you when you bought it? Uh, that's 16 years ago, so it would have been 47, 46, 47, or I think they 40, uh, whatever it yeah. is. I don't know. Early like 40s. I said, can't do the accounting. Yeah. <laughs> <Still>. <laughs> that's not my forte. Yeah, and, I, and I'll quickly tell you my personal aerobics first story was yeah. – I went to another running store and um, because they were close to where I lived and I bought a pair of shoes, didn't get a whole lot of care and had debilitating shin splints within within a few weeks. And so somebody suggested to go to aerobics first and and I've been buying it ever since. It's probably been 10 or 11 years since since we first met. Yeah, you go through a few pairs of shoes. (laughs) I do, I do. I have a travel pair and a pair for the gym. And 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 you always have one on deck too. Exactly, yeah, Yeah, yeah. because I never want to be without a pair if I need them. Yeah, and it's going to, like just uh, on the pandemic front, it's going to get a little ugly in the next uh, few months in terms of uh, uh, the... Uh, the logistics of getting shoes, yeah. uh, it's its, it's going to get hairy. Uh, yeah. So good for you to have a pair on deck. <laughs> yeah. So let's tie in the, the community stuff. When did you start, would you say, I mean, I guess ever since you were a kid, you were involved in the community. Yeah, I've, I've always done it <clears throat> uh, for no particular reason, and I liked it. But um, what would the start of, start of it be? I'd say... In terms of the picture right now, the things that I'm doing, like the World Litter Run, that would have started as early as 1996. But I didn't know I was going to sort of backdate the story at the time. But I, I knew as, uh, you know, we had a team called Team Z, and sort of the leader of the team was a guy named Randy Bowlerwell, very, very good runner. And it was probably, we probably had eight of the top ten runners uh, in the province were on this one particular team. And so we wanted to go up to the Cabot Trail Relay, and we said, uh, let's set a record uh, on this thing and, and see if we can blow the doors off the old record. 
And I said, why don't we set two records? Because whatever time we run, that, that record's going to break. I said, why don't we pick up a bag of litter on every leg? And then at the end, we'll hand in 17 bags of litter. And I said, that record won't be broke uh, until I break it in the future, which I'm going to. Uh, but that's, that's how I started picking up litter. And that's because that was what our father and mother always made us do when we went camping. We had to pick, the, pick up the campground. Like, we had to pick up the litter around the campground. But it wasn't just our camping spot. We had to pick up the litter around the whole campground. So all five of us would run, run like maniacs cleaning up the place. I think I found out about 20 years ago that Dad got free camping. <laughs> we didn't know that. Right. But I found it out significantly <laughs> afterwards. And I thought, that was, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so that was sort of the first litter run. And I thought, ah, that's sort of cool. And it was very well received at the time. And so that, I just stored that in my head to say, you know, this is, this is something that's going to be something in the future. And I don't know why. But it, as it turned out, it's turned into something very significant. Yeah, and I mean for context, because not everybody knows who you are, but they should. Is yeah. That you're probably one of the people that gives back, and and you said something kind of brilliant earlier. Was it's not just raising money; it's your time as well that you can give back, mm-hmm. and you, you give back more than anybody I know, and you've inspired us to to give back. Can you tell us about the other things that you're up to? Because there's a lot. Uh, <clears throat> well, there are, a lot of it is tied into waste, like wasted energy, wasted products, wasted time. Uh, and so uh, a big one that I started uh, 11 years ago, maybe 12, or the concept came out, was uh, I start to read uh, uh, stuff by Dr. Stuart Shanker on self-regulation. And then I had the opportunity to see him uh, in Cambridge uh, with a, a conference run by a group called Run for Life. So an, a, another Dartmouth and John Carson invited me up to see this guy. And so he was doing, he was doing a talk to the top uh, superintendents of all the schools uh, across, of all the school boards across Canada, and a failed academic, a shoe fitter. And like everyone said, like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm just curious on how you calm kids. Uh, because at the time, I was running a uh, uh, running and reading program in, in three of the sort of toughest schools in Halifax and Dartmouth. And I was always losing volunteers. Because I was losing the volunteers, uh, I didn't it took me three years to figure out that they'd only stay one year. And so what I did is I had a little meeting with all the volunteers that quit. And I said, why did you quit? They said, well, the first 15 minutes of that session was so boisterous and so crazy that I never enjoyed the next two hours. But I promised you I'd be here for a year. And I said, oh. And then that's when I started to research calming kids because I was one of those kids. I was regulated by my father uh, I'd have to run to school, run at Reese's, run home to and from at lunch, run home again, run to church, run home from church. So I was just, that's how I was regulated. And so anyway, um, we, I ended up sort of stunning in it, and then we found out about the existence of tiny, silent spin bikes. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if we put those in classrooms so if a little kid was losing their mind, they could get on the bike, spin it out without leaving the class? And so I ran that by my three of my sisters who are teachers and my mom and dad who are educators. And I said, that's a good idea. And so that went from 13 bikes that we originally purchased to 57. And now there's more than 10,000 bikes in classrooms across Canada around the world. Wow. And so that is to calm the kids so that energy isn't wasted. 
and a little bit of movement inside a classroom. It relieves them, opens up, you know, gives them a little serotonin hit, which opens up the pathways to learning. And uh, I said, wouldn't, I, I said, this is going to work. But it's been 10 years, and it's been this slow, gradual, gradual climb. And the next level of that stuff is coming next uh, through an organization called Disco Bello, which is going to gamify the concept. So there's going to be better measurables. Because I basically said at the start, this works. I know it works. <laughs> and everybody says, well, where's the data? I said, well, when, in the early days, I said, let's wait till we have 1,000 bikes. Now we have 10,000 bikes. We're going to find some data. And, you know, I knew it would work, and it, and it does work. It's just how do you make it sustainable? Yeah. So that was... So that's tied to waste, it's tied to litter. Uh, uh, a few years after, you know, this sort of thing broke out, uh, I was having a conversation with Dr. Shanker again, and I said, well, maybe the, because they were saying, how many minutes do you have to be on the bike? I said, well, that's a good question, but that'll take a lot of work in order to find out how you get the serotonin hit. I said, well, I think I can get the same hit by going over there and picking up that piece of litter if I do it, if my mind frame is good. So I'm not worried about the person that threw it there. I just pick it up. If I worry about the person that threw it there, I'm angry, I'm not going to get the serotonin in. So I pick it up knowing that I'm giving the world a hug. I just did myself a favor, and I gave the world a hug. I said, so, you know, how do we incorporate this into the schools like we did? And so that's sort of the next mission, is how do we de-stress the whole community by exercise, picking up litter, taking care of each other. It seems pretty simple to me, yeah. right? But it, there's so many stigmas that we're, you know, up against. Oh, I'm not picking up litter. Like, why would I do that? Someone else threw it. Because uh, you like the world, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> you have grandkids or kids that you might want to have a nicer... I want my staff to come, into, come up a clean street into our store, which they then keep clean, right? I picked up Quimple Road 216 times, Wow. right? And to me, it's fun. Yeah, I like absolutely. it. So those are a few of the little missiony things, and all that stuff reflects well in the store, of course. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's how we do it, and then we don't have to spend a lot of money, but we spend a lot of time because we don't. We're a little store; we don't have a ton of money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we could probably have like a four-hour podcast if we talked about all of the things. Oh that we yeah, do. it's um, a little crazy, but. But I do want to circle back because the, there is some health-related things in here that you mentioned that I didn't know about the weight gain when you had the office job. What was the kind of turning point that brought you back down to more and more healthy, sustainable weight? I now am the owner or part owner, partner at Aerobics First. Okay. So I'm literally uh, the alcoholic bartender, yeah. right? So all I am is old stories. I wanted to get myself back in shape so I could present myself appropriately in a premier running store, or health and fitness, I want to promote it. Uh, one very interesting backstory uh, on stigmas is I remember uh, one of my first customers when I came to Aerobics First, she came up the stairs very slowly with a walker, and she said, Luke, I finally get to buy a pair of shoes from you. I said, well, why couldn't you buy them before? She said, well, the last time I saw you, you were in a sports check in uh, Halifax Shopping Center, and at that time I was in the wheelchair because I was very obese. And I saw you, and you couldn't have been more than 150 pounds. And she said, you just wouldn't understand me. And she said, I said, well, what's changed? She said, you're fat like me. 
And I said, ah. So it was a different type of stigma, but it was still a stigma. And I had never thought of it. And I said, ah. So that's good. But ultimately, I still want to get in shape. I didn't want to pander to that you know, attitude, so to speak, but it gave me good insight into, you know, uh, how our store is perceived because we're often perceived as an elitist running store, whereas much more of our business is with, you know, uh, we had a Sherco foot today, so a very diabetic patient, uh, feet in terrible shape. Uh, we have a lot of people that are bigger. Uh, uh, the medical community sends a lot of people to us because, you know, we'll sell as many we'll sell more 40s and 60s than we will super shoes, right? And so the the way we're perceived is different for each category of people that we deal with. And so when I did the marketing plan, I did the marketing plan based on the heartstrings of the personality types. So if you're a runner and you like the fast stuff, uh, I'm going to do stuff that's cool in the community on that. We're going to support the races. If you're significantly obese, and you like uh, uh, you like the walking things. We're going to invest in that. We're going to hook up with the heart and stroke. We're going to hook up with uh, uh, the lung association. So we're going to find those strings. We're going to associate with each silo that we can recognize, even like arts. So you know, one of the craziest things uh, that uh, I was involved with with uh, over uh, the pandemic is we produced an album. You know, it's a world beat African album. And I engineered, engineered it and came up with all the concepts. And it's actually really cool. But that's, that card has yet to be played, but that's for the art side of the house. Uh, Margaret was very in touch with motion dance when she was a partner. And I said, well, that's a, that arts community, we want to be a part of that. How do we do it? Well, we support it through different types of efforts. Yeah. Uh, and we try to understand it. So that's sort of the broad strokes of how we do it. Like it's sort of like a 12th string guitar. Yeah. There's 12 silos. Let's hit a note for each uh, each um, group that we work with, which so is why we, you know, if you look, like you see it from the inside out, you can see this broad array of stuff. You don't necessarily know there's, there is a theme, right? Yeah. And do I wear super fast shoes? No, <laughs> actually you don't. You've, you've, you've oh, stayed no. back in the, in the sort of, I would call it a, a nice, prudent, safe category. Yeah. Like okay. let's be a little on the conservative side. So I know how fast I can get. I just don't want to break yeah. because you're. I can't be injured. You can't be injured, right? And, yeah. so, and that's sort of the same with me. Uh, you know, I don't wear the super shoes because I'm racing myself. And I don't want the assist of a shoe knowing that my my goal is to do this. I don't want to change that. Yeah. But if you're raising a person that has them, you're sort of stuck. Yeah. You, you sort of, you got to get them, right? And yeah, and you brought up an interesting stigma because that's the same in our industry as well. Some of the most successful personal trainers are those who have a personal, uh, whether it be weight loss or weight gain, if they're becoming a bodybuilder or something like that, or right. they're doing shows. And often people, you know, they don't want to go to a gym because they think that the trainer can't relate to them. And right. there's ways, as a trainer, the best way to overcome that is with experience and, right. you know, by being a good person. But right. there's a lot to it on our industry. But also it made me chuckle because, you know, Roger King, I presume. Yes, uh, yes, some, yes. Supplement King. And, and yeah. I, I laugh with him all the time. And it's, it's, I used to be scared to go to the supplement store because the people working at the store were these huge jack guys and yeah. they were intimidating. And yeah. all you went there for was the protein. But yeah. now that they have... 
protein bars and all of this stuff. I mean, their demographic has changed, and they need to right. make sure that they hire the right people that aren't intimidating for, right. for us to walk into the store. And, and especially now, it's important to, to market towards that because during the pandemic, a lot of people make great decisions by getting off the coach. That's why yeah, our business has been good because it's been choosing outside. But that's also why your businesses have been pummeled, like just in general. Uh, you know, and the perception of the gyms and being enclosed is uh, it's going to be tough to overcome. But by doing what you do, that is the way you'll overcome it, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, we're on the same page with all of that stuff. So as a busy entrepreneur and family man as well, how do you, what are your tips for, for balancing everything, staying on track? Oh, if I said uh, I'm balanced, that would be just a flat-out lie. Because <laughs> I'm... Important. Because I'm, uh, I basically wake up at five. Uh, I generally talk to my friends in uh, Africa and set the stage for the stuff that they're doing. Um, and then I do my own workout, like I do my uh, morning uh, mobility and stuff like that. But that's when I like to get out of my bike and, and do a walk, jog, or, or something like that. And so that the morning is the most important. And if I get out of balance, if I miss four days in a row, I could miss a month. Uh, but over the, over the summer, I definitely had to dial it back because there was, uh, there was so much turmoil in terms of my father's health and all kinds of other stuff that was going on. I said, I have to, I'm going to slow everything down to walks, picking up litter, the real basics. Um, the tough part was coming home at night uh, and eating too much uh, just to stay up to think that I had a life and could hang out with, with, with my wife, but I would feed my fatigue in order to stay up. And that's, that gets tenuous, but as soon as it gets dark at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning, I change over because I say, okay, now I'm ready to go. Uh, I don't deal well with heat. I rash up a lot, uh, and it's just, it's just not fun for me. But as soon as it cools down, I can get out. Uh, I get back on track. So if you looked at my cycle over the course of a year, I could claim some balance. But if you look at it day to day, uh, or say week to week, not so much balance. Yeah. So, and I heard a, a good quote from somebody. They say, because I personally don't believe in work-life balance, especially when you really love what you do. Uh, and somebody said work-life blending, and that really kind of hit yeah. home for me. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually, that's that's really good. And I also think, uh, you know, I got lucky. I'm presuming you got lucky, but I'm not in the shoe business because of happenstance. I'd known all my life that this is what I want to do. And so that makes it easy. Where I feel bad for people is who, who find themselves in the career and they think their career is going to give them their life satisfaction. So it's important to have what I refer to as an outrigger, which is something that's really special that you bring back into your work. It's not the other way around. Work will suck the life out of your passions. So I tell a lot of people that, you know, I speak to a, a lot of younger people about, you know, the problem with, uh, not loving your job is that you, your job is stolen your passion from you, right? And sometimes you have to say, okay, I don't love the job, but it pays for my passion. And so you, you pull it out of your work and you put it in your fun stuff, and then that stuff pays your job back. So too many people are looking for their life satisfaction out of their job, which is a drag. We're lucky. Yeah. You know, we're, we, you know it's, it's a blended satisfaction. Uh, so I, I really like uh, I like that term for sure. Yeah, and that's great advice too because a lot of people 
especially in the social media age, they think that they need to quit their job in order to follow their passion, but it's not necessarily you need your job to pay your bills. Yeah. So you have to figure out your advice and, and what works on how to use that to fuel your other passions, right? So. Yeah, and the amount of people that, you know, their goal is to have, you know, a million followers that I've talked to, it's like, oh my God, are you serious? Like, that's what you want? And what are you actually going to be doing for people? It's it's insane. And the stuff that's coming out now about Facebook and Instagram and, and the uh, the stigmatizing of that, it's it's probably 50 times what it was 10 years ago. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's scary times. Yeah. And I had a very similar upbringing to you a little bit, uh, a little bit later on, but yeah. we had a neighborhood where we could always have a baseball game or a soccer game or a hockey game. And it was easy to find enough people. We had some flat streets. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it was uh, the, the long distance. I <laughs> think <laughs> so I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. Not staying too long until mom was upset that we didn't, didn't make it home. Um, anything else that, that you think would be important for people that are on a lot of, you know, a lot of our clients are struggling to get started, struggling to stay motivated after they get, get going, struggling with, they, four days turned into a month um, or uh, things like that? I think, I think it's really important to write it down uh, and not in digital format. Like, write it down. And then what's interesting is you flip, I'm just pretending I'm flipping through one of my binders. Uh, but if you, see, if you see a week's worth of stuff on one page and you turn it again and you turn it again, and you, you become addicted to writing it down. And that creates a routine that is sustainable because you like to look in the book and you say, wow, look at the progress. I've done all this. It's sort of too late to stop now. Yeah. And sort of, so I think writing down what you do is, is really important. And that's true with goal setting. Uh, any type of business work, you know, jot it down, jot it down. Make your notes and look back and say, ah, this is, uh, I've accomplished something here. So I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of you know, writing things down. Yeah, absolutely. And keeping it front of mind, I would say. Front of mind, yeah. Because even in, in a digital device, it's just, it's not three-dimensional. And for my type of personality, I need something that's 3D and tangible as opposed to in a, in a phone and stuff like that. And do you believe in, because you post a lot of stuff, like on social media, do you believe that that helps with, with kind of social and public accountability? People might uh, ask why you're not doing it if you're not posting. That's a good question. I'm very... Um, up and down on it. So I, when I get moody, I get off of it. You know, I, I was lucky, you know, last week uh, I got the boot off Facebook because I was so sick of what I was hearing that I said, I'm going to change my age. This is funny, actually. So I, I changed it to zero. And I, was gonna, and I was trying to change the other settings from only me to vacant. And apparently you can't do that. And so I was saying, oh, that's funny. They actually really have me. They have this information, and I can't extract it out of there. And so uh, uh, I changed my age to zero, and then the warning came up. It said, you're too young for Facebook. <laughs> I said, okay. Then I said, I said uh, like to try again. So I tried it again, and I put in 99, and I said, you're suspended. And I said, it's too old for Facebook. <laughs> and I said, I think it's because I changed it twice, uh, and it then asked me for, gov- for me to take a picture of my governmental ID. And I said, I'm not giving that to Mr. Merrick. Yeah. There's not a chance, especially yeah. after the crap that he just heard. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the social media, like, uh, I would use it for myself to psych myself up because I do also believe in a public statement. Ah, he started again or whatever. But I, I can also see the terrible trap it is because 
talking about a waste of time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I use it to promote what I do. Hopefully it's not too self-aggrandizing, but I use it to promote what we do because I think we're doing good stuff. And Dean, my partners, give me a long leash to work from in terms of, you know, uh, making a, a, a good presentation of aerobics for a story. But I also am quite blend it in that regard, like how do you separate Luke from the store and vice versa. Yeah. Right? So it's uh, yeah, It is inspiring too because when people see that and, and this is what it was for me, is if Luke can do that, why can't I? That's right, because I'm pretty I'm a pretty simple person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think all the stuff I do, that's one of the things I love about it. It's really easily duplicatable. How hard is it hard is it to pick up litter? How hard is it to take some time for a young entrepreneur and give them an hour worth of your best information and an hour worth of your failure, failures? That is, that's time well spent, yeah. right? And you know, I'll, I'll I'll never say no to anybody that requests a moment of time. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Anything you want to add? No. Well, I just kudos to you because uh, I think it's very reciprocal. I see what you're doing in the industry, and you just have a propensity of being able to do some really big things. I do little things. I do a lot of little things, but you keep hitting these freaking home runs, and I say, <laughs> I get a little bit jealous. Well, but <laughs> you keep swinging for the fences. That's all I can say. Well, the interesting thing is that you don't see people as often as we do and the re- you, you develop great relationships which is great but we see people sometimes more than they see their own family so right. we have these deep connections with yeah, people yeah, and they that's just right. get on board with everything that we do and, yeah. and, and it's great but, yeah. uh, but that's, that's also the inherent beauty of the gym like you have a real family community thing you know we have uh, you know uh, people that come in and out it's not like the old days of the original aerobics first where people used to hang out there for hours. <laughs> it's sort of an in and out. It's yeah. very cordial. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a couple hours a year. Someone here, it's, it could be a couple hours a day, yeah. you know, five days a week. So uh, that's a great opportunity, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that if they haven't tried it yet, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Great. Well, Come I appreciate your time, Luke. Yeah, thanks for coming. And anybody listening, uh, check out Aerobics First on Quinpool Road and, and give them a follow on social media see all the stuff that they get up to. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Great.